if someone asks you, what do you do? You could text something like, I'll give you two clues. Number one, my parents still don't understand what I do. And number two, it involves bib lettuce. See if you can guess. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you shitty down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, season three. It's episode 64 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. On today's episode, it is our absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Rachel Greenwald. Rachel joined us for episode 18 of the podcast for an absolutely tremendous spot where we talked all about dating and the world of matchmaking and her two best-selling books, Find a Husband After 35, Using What I Learned at Harvard Business School, and Have Him at Hello. That conversation with Rachel was brilliant and a blast. And she's back with us on today's episode for a sizzling summer episode that has all the fireworks. And we're going to talk to Rachel about her upcoming matchmaking training retreat in October, the Love MBA in La Jolla, California. And if you're intrigued, well, you should be. And you should absolutely consider joining this one-of-a-kind retreat and chance to learn from the absolute best in the matchmaking world. On today's episode, we're going to get into the views and perspectives of the matchmaker and get the answer to the question all of us are wondering. How accurate are the reality matchmaking shows that we just can't stop watching? We talk dating and relationships and the do's and don'ts of what not to discuss on a first date. Great conversation with Rachel Greenwald is coming up. And speaking of fireworks, producer Dave, how was your July 4th? It was fairly uneventful given the less than ideal weather, but spent it with my son, did some uh, grilling and stuff like that. How about yourself, Evan? Dave, I can see you being a fantastic griller, just working <laughs> that grill. I, I mean, flipping the burgers. I mean, yeah, yeah I'm just, yeah, I'm, I can just see uh, I'm just producing burgers and dogs instead of podcasts. Yeah, no, seamless transition. <laughs> I got to tell you, July 4th was great, but I got a problem. I don't know how to get my daughter Olivia to stop singing Firework by Katy Perry. I mean, I know she's one of your all-time favorite pop stars, but what do I do? I mean, she wakes up in the morning singing Baby, You're a Firework. <laughs> Embrace it, because at some point when she's 15 and a half and she refuses to speak to her dad, you'll you'll miss those days. <laughs> I have so to, you know, I, Basically, what you're saying is enjoy enjoy the moment. Enjoy the moment. <laughs> Come on. You're, you are a firework, Evan. <laughs> yeah, I've been told that before. I got to tell you, staying with the firework theme, people often associate fireworks with July 4th, and rightfully so. Great time of year. We kick off the summer. And so let me say this. Those are the good fireworks, the colorful ones, the ones that you want to watch, the ones that light up the sky and fill it with all sorts of great colors, the ones that put on a show and a spectacle that you don't want to miss. But Dave, how about the other fireworks? the ones that have been lingering and waiting to ignite all year long for so many couples and people in rocky marriages. And now it's the thickest summer, the kids are at camp. And I'll tell you this, in my experience, summertime is often a make or break time for people to work on their marriage and relationship with the kids out of the house. 
And either those fireworks will take some couples to the breaking point, or they will use this summer as a time to figure things out. But speaking of fireworks, nobody lights up the docket like producer Dave. So fire it up. As we say, let's fire it up. And now let's see what's on the docket. We're going to talk about a couple celebrity divorces on the docket this week. The first one comes to us from people.com. Item one. Kevin Costner, Mr. Field of Dreams himself, his estranged wife, Christine, is ordered to move out of the home by the end of the month, according to reports. Again, it's a people.com article. His wife, Christine Baumgartner, will have to move out of their shared $145 million compound by the end of the month. The judge has ordered. They've been going through proceedings. On they go. Your thoughts on this ongoing case with these ongoing celebrities. Dave, my first thought is I am absolutely convinced that the only reason you put this on today's docket is so we can talk about not Kevin Costner's divorce, but Kevin Costner's movies, since I know you're a huge movie buff. So let me just tell you my all-time favorite Kevin Costner movie, which happens to be my all-time favorite sports movie, and that's Bull Durham. I can't be convinced that there's any better Kevin Costner or sports movie out there. You may want to say Hoosiers. You may want to say, I don't know. You, you're a major league guy. Bull Durham for me takes the cake. No, I'm, I'm not that much of a major. Major league is fun, but for <laughs> for for years, Bull Durham has, has always been listed among the top sports movies and sometimes number one. And I'm not sure you're going to get an objection from me. Uh, I love Hoosiers like like everybody else. Remember the Titans came along. That was a really good one. The Rocky movies, you can you can have those. But the thing about Bull Durham that was great was that it embraced the sort of the real sort of dirty existence of the minor league player, all the jokes, and the sort of absurdity of playing in these ramshackle areas as compared to major league parks. And uh, Costner and Robbins were both tremendous. Incidentally, tremendous. I, I yeah. saw Robert Wool uh, once. You'll remember this. He's the pitching coach and the, the memorable meeting at the mound scene. I saw him once yep. at Fenway Park. He was walking past me. I said, Robert Wool, I love your stuff. He, he sort of smirked. And I, as he walked away with his back to me, I said to him, hey, candlesticks. Candlesticks make a really good gift. And he turned around and he, <laughs> he pointed at me and smiled. He liked that one. So, so yes, I'm with you. And I love the untouchables. I love Field of Dreams. Tough to beat Crash Davis and Bull Durham. No, you're right. And Dave, going from Costner's movies to Costner's divorce, look, it's been nonstop action in his divorce action with wife Christine Bumgarter since she first told Costner she was done. She wanted out. But what I want to focus on is the most important ruling came down last week when a judge directed that Baumgartner move out of the residence that she was apparently refusing to vacate despite the party's terms in their prenuptial agreement. We'll get into this divorce because it's going nowhere. This divorce has more heat and more action than a no-no Nanette fastball. So I have no <laughs> doubt we will be talking about this all summer long. I'll look forward to that. Our next item comes to us from CBSNews.com. Item two. Pop singer Ricky Martin and his husband Juan Yosef are divorcing after six years of marriage. They released a statement recently that said, for some time we've considered transforming our relationship and after careful consideration, we've decided to end our marriage, et cetera, et cetera. It's a sad moment, of course, for Ricky Martin. They share a daughter, Lucia, and a son, Ren. Martin also has twin sons, born in 2008. 
And uh, another uh, celebrity couple hits the skids. But your thoughts on this one, Evan? Dave, look, there's nothing earth shattering about Ricky Martin and his husband splitting up and calling it quits after six years. But the point I want to touch on and ask you for your thoughts, if you remember in the news about a year ago, Ricky Martin faced allegations of harassment by his nephew and was on the receiving end of a restraining order before the claims were eventually withdrew. And I believe the case went away. And this was about a year ago. But what interests me is the effect and impact that things like that a year ago, the allegations, the impact that this took potentially on Ricky Martin's marriage. And so when people go through extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and all we hear about is what happens at the end. A couple broke up, a couple got divorced, but we don't really know the story, what happens behind closed doors. And in the world of celebrities and like Ricky Martin, this is something that really could have had potentially an impact and we don't really know. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I mean, I have always said, Evan, it's like we, we think we know these celebrities and we don't really know them. And that restraining orders can sometimes be used as a weapon. And I don't know, maybe I'm passing the buck here, but I think it's not for me to say what has gone on behind the scenes that has led to this acrimony. And so all we can say is it's sad, but I... I mean, as a divorce lawyer, I take it that sometimes what gets reported and maybe even sometimes in the cases you've worked on, there's a lot more. These are complicated situations. Am I right about that? No, you're 100% right. And issues in marriages, they they start early on. It takes years before people will end up in my office. Things boil to the surface. People make the hard decision to finally get divorced and, and take that next step. But People have been going through issues, often trying to work on themselves, work on their marital issues, the, re- the issues in the relationship for several months, if not years, before they step foot in a divorce attorney's office. And look, the other thing to remember is there's two sides. There's two sides of the story, and we don't know what happened in this instance, other instances. But it's important not to forget celebrities go through things that normal people go through as well. And, and, and whether there's tough times in marriages or other issues with children or whatever it may be, they go through things just like normal people go through things as well. Absolutely. Well, now we're up to the segment of the podcast where we hear from you, the listeners, in this installment of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. We hear from Terry from New Rochelle, New York. Terry writes as follows. Dear Evan, I've heard about the concept of a prenuptial agreement, but I'm already married. Is it too late for my spouse and me to revisit this? How would that work? Your thoughts, Evan? Terry, fantastic question and two words. Postnuptial agreement. It's not too late. The major difference is that the agreement will be a postnuptial agreement since if you sign it, it will be after your marriage. You can still address the exact same financial things that you would have addressed in a prenup, how assets and income will be shared, how they will be divided in the event of a divorce. And those financial assets could include income, retirement assets, stock options, businesses. And you can also use this as an opportunity to define what's separate and marital property and to have that discussion with your spouse on how you're going to live your married life financially. And if in the event you were to divorce, what things would look like for you at that time. To start the process, I recommend having an initial conversation with your spouse to gauge the response and then take it from there with respect to moving forward and getting legal advice from an attorney. 
back with us on this week's episode of the Shine Up Podcast is renowned matchmaker and dating coach Rachel Greenwald. She is the New York Times bestselling author of two books. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Evan. I'm so glad to be back on. Thanks for having me again. Of course, and Rachel, we had so much fun when you joined us on episode 18 in August of 2021, and we are going to have even more fun today. Now, in August 2021, we were right in the middle of a pandemic, and the matchmaking and dating scene looked just a little bit different. Now, your episode was tremendous, and as was the feedback from so many listeners across the country. And if you're listening to Rachel now, but you did not hear episode 18, you should absolutely go back and take a listen to that episode. But Rachel, let's get right into it. Matchmaking shows on Netflix they are so incredibly popular right now. Indian matchmaking, Jewish matchmaking. Everybody wants to know how true to life are those so-called reality shows? And what's it really like to work as a matchmaker behind the scenes? Oh, I love those shows so much. I binged them exactly the, the week they came out. People are fascinated by matchmaking now. And there are definitely some things from the shows that are real. First of all, like finding love is really, really hard, like you see on those shows. And also clients have really unrealistic expectations, like you see on the show. We actually have this behind the scenes saying in the world of matchmaking. I'll share it with you. It's the the expression that the world is full of sixes who think they're eights and want to date tens. So it's... <laughs> hard job being a matchmaker. But what's I think great about those shows for someone like me as a matchmaker is just that those shows really normalize using a matchmaker. It's not embarrassing anymore. It's not like a fringe thing to use a matchmaker. It's just really common. I mean, if it's on TV, it must be common. And the growth of the matchmaking industry has been huge. About 10 years ago, there were probably about 50 matchmakers in the US. And now there's probably about 5,000. So it's just an industry that's thriving and these reality shows kind of underscore that. But I think what's important for people to understand about matchmaking as a business is that it's the wild west. Anyone can hang up a shingle and be a matchmaker. It's not like being a lawyer where you have to pass the bar and get certified and there are all these regulations to the industry. So if you know anyone's thinking about using a matchmaker, you have to really be careful and make sure you find someone who's been recommended to you by someone. It's, it's an industry that really needs business standards. So in fact, that's why I'm teaching a training boot camp this fall for matchmakers using the skills that I learned at Harvard Business School on how to become a matchmaker. So it's called the Love MBA, and it's a, a two-day retreat to learn how to become a matchmaker. And you're a divorce attorney, Evan, and we actually have a really amazing divorce coach who's coming to the Love MBA. I don't know if you've heard of her. Her name is Wendy Kesser of Get With Wendy. And she, like a lot of other people in the world of divorce coaching or life coaching or executive recruiting, they bring skills to matchmaking that are really similar. And especially as a divorce coach, people can experience the full life cycle that kind of helps them navigate someone from the pain and frustration of divorce. But then at the end of the process, the Love MBA can help them move forward and find happiness with the right partner. So I'm really excited about that. No, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Rachel, you have such an incredible and unique perspective, and you're going to bring that perspective and experience to the Love MBA 
that workshop and retreat that you're teaching. And I've always said here on the podcast and in my practice, divorce is a true team sport. And you mentioned a divorce coach. You was a matchmaker. I firmly believe that anyone who's going through the divorce process really needs a team of people around him or her. And they can be different people, whether you're in the middle of a divorce or you're looking to reshape your life going forward and people who can work with that person to understand what he or she might be looking for in the dating world, in the coaching world. So I absolutely love everything you're doing. When it comes to the perspective of a matchmaker, you must see it all. What are some of the common mistakes people make when they're texting someone that you're dating? Oh, I love this question about texting because the biggest number one mistake that people make is that they're boring. They ask questions like, hey, which isn't even a question. <laughs> they ask, <laughs> what's up? How are you? How's your day going? What do you do? These are such boring text exchanges. It's like they're just ex sometimes or they're just exchanging demographic data. Like, where are you from? So I think that in texting, the goal should be you have to be intriguing and you have to be different. So let me give you an example. The most common question that people ask in a dating situation when texting in the beginning of getting to know someone is the age old, what do you do? And so the response is typically to state your profession, like I'm a lawyer or I'm an accountant. And it's just so boring because remember, you're not just texting with that one person. You are texting probably with dozens of others. They are texting with dozens of others. And it's mind-numbingly boring to ask and answer constantly these questions. So what I coach my clients to do is to come up with intriguing answers. So if someone asks you, what do you do? You could say something like, I'll give you two clues and see if you can guess what I do. Number one, my parents still don't understand what I do. And number two, it involves bib lettuce. See if you can guess. <laughs> So this is actually a real example from a client who's a director of marketing at a hydroponic farming company. And this is just such a more intriguing response that makes texting more engaging. It turns it into flirting, but be careful of two things. One, don't use too many emojis, especially for guys. That's always a tricky balance. Sometimes an occasional emoji is good to signal mood and sentiment, but not too many. And then the other tip I tell my clients is to turn off the red messages, R-E-A-D, on the iPhone setting. So the person that you're dating or might be dating doesn't know when or if you've actually read their message. This is something that kind of gives you the allure of seeming busy and desirable, or it just gives you time to think about what you want to say before the other person knows that you read it and didn't respond right away. Because what you want to do is actually mirror the pace of their response time. So when you're texting, if they're texting back within 30 seconds, you can text back within 30 seconds. But if they're waiting an hour or a day to text back, you should approach that pace as well. It doesn't have to be to the minute, but that's kind of the guideline in the early stages of getting to know someone. I absolutely love that. I'm intrigued by the bib lettuce. In it, but you're right. Like listening to I, I was... I mean, I was inching closer to the microphone, the computer. I, I I was intrigued just listening to that. And when somebody responds, accountant, lawyer, yeah, that that's the 
there, there's a boringness to that response. So you definitely take it up a level with, with that great advice, but not everybody is going to work with a matchmaker. Not everybody is going to necessarily be as intriguing and as creative as you describe. So for people who struggle to come up with text messages that are like the ones you describe, AI, chat, GPT, should people use those to write their messages? I am actually a huge advocate of using AI and chat GPT to write text messages, especially in the early stages of a relationship, because it's really a time saver. Dating today is a volume play with all the um, options on dating apps and the nature of the game that is dating in an online era like this. And so, yeah, absolutely. There's an app that I really like, especially called keys.ai, K-E-Y-S.ai. It's a kind of AI program that you download into the dating apps. And you also can use it for texting in all areas of your life, like with friends or family or work, if you are really busy or just don't know what to say in a tricky situation. So I really am an advocate of that. And it's only going to get more common. People aren't going to know whether they're texting with you or an app in the future, but sometimes the app is just better and it can create deeper connections because it knows what to say. It knows often how not to be boring. So I, I really like that, but I guess I would caution people that AI isn't the only solution for frustration with texting. Like I wouldn't want to take it on the surface if somebody's saying that they struggle with coming up with a text message because Often there's a lot more going on with the struggle. It could be a lack of commitment to dating. And then the the output is, oh, I don't know what to say in a text message, but the reason is deeper. And there's also other solutions for time saving. And I don't know if you've ever heard of online dating concierges, but this is a new niche profession within the dating business. So this is a profession where somebody's entire job is to text for you and swipe for you on these dating apps and they act as if they are you. So I use online dating concierges where somebody is like a middle-aged woman who's married with three kids and they're sitting in their home office <laughs> with a do not disturb sign outside their door so their kids don't bother them. And they have like 25 burner phones on their desk and they're swiping and texting clever flirty messages for all these people. And some people might have a problem with that, but honestly, it's just a time saver. I mean, that's kind of what the world has come to these days. And as long as you keep it only to the early stages of dating, like, you know, just when you're trying to decide if you're going to be a match with someone and if you're going to schedule a first date, then I'm all for it. I mean, once you actually connect with someone, then it needs sure. to be you. Oh, wow. Rachel, how the dating world has changed when I was dating, but I have to tell you, it's, it, it's a fascinating world. I know it's changed a lot over the years. I don't even want to ask you how many times someone has said to you, I should have seen it. I should have seen the red flags. So could you share with us some red flags, some warning signs that someone should be aware of when starting to date a new person? Yeah, absolutely, Evan. I think there's just so many red flags that I would probably try to highlight just a few that I think are the most subtle and hard to detect. 
The first one that comes to mind is love bombing. You may have heard that expression where someone is showering you with a ton of affection or gifts or excessive compliments, and it's all coming too soon and too fast. And a lot of people feel good with that. And so that's why it's kind of a subtle red flag. It could mean that someone has, uh, that the person you're dating might have unresolved attachment issues. And so they're attaching too quickly, or it might be an attempt to get you to depend on them so they can control you. It could mean that they just love the chase and then they're going to grow bored when you like them too quickly. I mean, of course, not all grand gestures of affections are red flags, but love bombing is is one I would, would point to. Other things like someone who doesn't have close friends or someone who makes subtle attempts at control, like not being comfortable with you spending time alone or using silence as a weapon, freezing you out when they're upset with you. Someone who doesn't take personal responsibility when they say it's always someone else's fault and always an external circumstance that creates a problem. Those those are some that come to mind. But I was actually just reading this article the other day about instead of red flags or green flags, have you heard of beige flags? I have not. No, I'm intrigued. Tell me yeah, uh, what's a beige, beige flag. Flags, beige flags is the new color. It's something like where an odd trait in a romantic partner is not a deal breaker, but it's not exactly desirable either. <laughs> so it's sort of like benign, but baffling. So what do, you, what do you do with a beige flag? Let's say you go on a date. Yeah, I see a beige flag. Do you, is there a date number two? Like, what do you do with that, that beige flag? Yeah, the answer is yes. If you see a beige flag, you, first of all, have to know that you've got beige flags too. So he's seeing your beige flags and vice versa. But, you know, these are these are things that are quirky to one person, um, but <laughs> adorable to someone else. So examples might be like, I don't know, someone's afraid of the wind or someone chews rapidly like a chipmunk or someone <laughs> alphabetizes the yogurt flavors in their refrigerator. Um, but I think the the point is that you have to identify the difference between what's a preference and annoyance versus what is a true deal breaker. So red flags are deal breakers and beige flags are, I think, part of life. It's just a question of which beige flags you can live with because they're definitely going to be many. That's really interesting. And let's stay with the advice theme. What advice would you give to someone who consistently finds themselves in bad dates or unsuccessful dating experiences. And as being a matchmaker, do you have to give people some uncomfortable truths? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the job description of a matchmaker is giving people uncomfortable truths because what they've been doing so far hasn't worked. So they need to try something different. And if I'm just there to validate everything they're doing, then I'm not really helping them. But I think your question goes deeper than just someone who consistently finds themselves in bad dates is self-diagnosing that situation. That's not necessarily what's going on at a deeper level. So what I mean by that is that sometimes a client will go out on a date and come back and say it was a bad date, but I want to dig deeper and understand what that really means because it's possible that the client did something or said something that was undesirable on that date. And then the person across the table didn't like them and then proceeded to pull back and maybe seemed bored or disinterested or dismissive. 
And so that's not really the same thing as a bad date. I mean, it's a bad date in the client's mind, but it's more like the other person that you were having dinner with decided early on they weren't going to ask you out again. So then they proceeded to act in a way you didn't like because they were just biding their time until the date was over. And so it's not that the other person is a bad match, but the dynamic that was caused to create the feeling you have it was a bad date may need to be examined. And so the biggest thing as a matchmaker that I help people do is give them feedback. Kind of like an exit interview when you leave a, a company and HR might reach out to you and say, all right, now that you have nothing to lose, like what what would you have to say candidly about working for this company? And only on the way out the door do people tell the truth. So I actually do something really uncomfortable. I ask my clients to give me the contact info for their dates and I help them understand by calling those people what really went on from the other person's perspective. And those are hard conversations, but they are game changing. So I, I think that that's a really important part of the job. People ask me all the time, like what component of matchmaking is really more like therapy and coaching and what percent is more like introductions to a new person. And I would say, I don't know, 80% of my job is therapy and coaching and feedback. And once I get people in the right space, and that's such a, a big topic, but once they're in the right space, then the introductions are easy. Rachel, that's absolutely fascinating. And so when it comes to what to say and what not to say, say or don't say it, what are some key conversation topics to avoid or questions that people should just not ask at a first date? Well, I think people know some of the most popular ones that they shouldn't talk about. I think we all know that you shouldn't talk about religion or politics or those kind of things. But some of the ones that I help clients with as a coach is how to talk about your ex. Because if you're divorced or recently broken up with someone in a long-term relationship, I do role plays to help clients answer the question, why did you get divorced? Because that is really tricky. And I think there's some consensus out there that you just shouldn't talk about your ex at all. But what I try to do is help people answer these questions in a way that doesn't sound bitter or angry. And the topic can be okay as long as you handle it right. And I think there's a a level to conversation topics that should be a priority, which is to get beneath the surface. So we talked earlier about avoiding anything that's boring, like demographic data exchanges. What do you do? How many siblings do you have? But underneath that, the guideline would be to be vulnerable. So you don't have to avoid all personal topics. It's the personal topics that create connection. So what might that sound like? First of all, there are ways to ask a question to role model the behavior of, of vulnerability, which I think always makes a date more successful. So you might want to set the tone by sharing something personal about yourself. Like you could say, hey, I'm struggling to make a big decision right now. Here's what's going on. And I'd love any advice you might have for me. Even that just starts to get below the layer of demographic data exchange. And then asking personal questions is really important. There's a 
dating coach. I follow her content all the time named Logan Yuri. And she talked recently about some follow-up questions. Let's see if I can remember. I think she said something like, if they're talking about their job, you could say, what surprises you most about your career? Or I think another one was like, what would your 16-year-old self think of what you're doing today? Those are just thoughtful questions that get somebody really opening up and avoiding a boring conversation. So I'm sure that there's so many emotions, so many feelings that people have before they go into a date. So Rachel, in your experience, what are some effective strategies for overcoming nervousness, anxiety, or similar emotions before going on a date? I think that having a pre-date ritual is really important. It could be meditating, exercising, taking a bubble bath. It could be like calling your favorite person and having them give you a pep talk or even making a Spotify playlist with your favorite feel-good songs. I think that's probably the first step. And understanding that you need a transition ritual between work and the date, I think is going to ease a lot of the nervousness as well. The other thing that I tell people is to frame the date in your mind, like it's not actually a date. It's just meeting a new friend that helps take the pressure off instead of feeling like, oh, could this be my future husband or my future wife? That is high stakes. You don't, nobody needs that kind of pressure. So when you go out on a date, I think you should only have one goal in mind, which is what's something I can learn from this person tonight. And if you think of it that way, I think a lot of the anxiety just melts away there's a life coach I listen to all the time. You may have heard of her name, Mel Robbins. And I love her expression where she says, if it's not love, it's a lesson. And so just thinking about it in your mind, like low stakes, if it's not love, it's a lesson, move forward. I think that should help take the pressure off. I love that quote. And Rachel, you've worked and you've helped with so many clients over the years as a matchmaker and a dating coach. Is there one success story from your career or even more than one that stands out to you as being special or unique? Oh, I love my success stories. First of all, I have many non-successful stories, but I won't <laughs> share those with you. Working with a matchmaker is not a guarantee. And so, of course, there are wins and losses, but so, so many success stories. Um, I've actually, I'm actually responsible for more than 900 marriages over the last 25 years. So wow, nice. wow. that's incredible. I'm, it's so, I love what I do, but I would say that my favorite success stories are when two people make a connection despite not fitting each other's original criteria about what they told me they absolutely, definitely 1000% wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I find that if I parse out the success stories that the successes came when people separated what they wanted from what they needed. So for example, there's one success story recently that I love well, it was about two years ago, or no, sorry, that was, it was before the pandemic. So it must've been three or four years ago, time flies. But I had a client in Denver and he was a partner in a law firm. And I wanted to introduce him to some women in New York. And I felt like based on what he really wanted and needed that women in New York were going to be a better fit for him, even though he lived in Denver. 
And he told me with a hundred percent certainty, he did not have time for a long distance relationship and he would absolutely never date someone out of state. And the woman I eventually, I'll sort of simplify the story, but the woman I eventually introduced him to or originally said that she wouldn't go out with him either because he lived too far away and she wanted to get married sooner or later and didn't have time for a long distance relationship. And I practically forced them to get together and meet again. I'll just make it short for the purpose of the podcast, but eventually they fell in love and she moved to Denver within six months of starting to date him. And now they are married with two kids. So it was fast and it was deep and both of them just had to get out of their own way. And this long distance thing in today's world is not as big a deal as people think it is. Is it a hassle? Is it inconvenient for the first stage of the relationship? Maybe the first six to 12 months? Absolutely. But you have to have the long, long-term goal in mind, which is to find love regardless of geography. That's an absolutely incredible success story. Hey, Rachel, now we are going to give producer Dave a mic, which is always fun, entertaining, and sometimes a dangerous thing. But we have a fun segment that we now do on the podcast. Dave, you are up. All right. Dangerous is right. We're going to give you three quotes. All of them are about relationships, and you can just react pro, con, or otherwise. In a segment we call They Said It. They Said It. They Said It. They Said It. Quote number one comes to us from French romantic writer Victor Hugo. He said the following, The greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved, loved for ourselves, or rather loved in spite of ourselves. Your thoughts? Oh, I would give a big thumbs up to that quote. I think authenticity is such a big topic in dating today. And so many people feel like they have to put on a mask and be somebody that they think the other person wants them to be or somebody they themselves think they should be. But loving someone for who they are and despite of who they are is at the core of love. And so I love that. So you're a big believer in the fact that you you can love someone in the classic sense and still have there still maybe things about the person that you genuinely don't like. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, turn the mirror back on yourself. You're not perfect either. And (laughs) the partner that you're with hopefully loves you despite all your imperfections. So I think that is a part of uh, a relationship and certainly over many years that is inevitable. I've been married 30 years and I think there are many things that both drive me crazy and drive my husband crazy about each other. But I think I would quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg on this when asked about the secret to her long-term marriage. She said, you have to be a little deaf. I was married for 23 years, but that streak of 23 years did come to an end. So I wish I had you at the time. Oh no, we should talk after the podcast. (laughs) Quite possibly, quite possibly. Quote number two comes to us from novelist Anais Nin. Anais wrote the following. You don't find love, it finds you. It's got a little bit to do with destiny, fate, and what's written in the stars. Your thoughts? Uh, I'm going to disagree wholeheartedly with Mm. that quote. I think that 
The gist of that quote is that it's love is faded and it should be like in Hollywood movies where you have a meet cute story. And I just don't believe in that at all. I think that if fate is late, you need to be really proactive and not just think that there's going to be some destiny to finding love, especially in today's world. There's no shame in stating to everybody that you want a relationship and that you should create a strategy to find the right relationship. I mean, I have a you know business background, so I use the analogy that it's like looking for a job. If you were looking for a job, you wouldn't just sit sit around and say, oh gosh, I hope a recruiter knocks on my door today. No, you would write a resume and you would get that resume circulated among people you respect and get feedback on it and you would make edits and then you would send that resume out to every connection you have and you would come up with creative strategies to get information interviews and all sorts of things, right? So why wouldn't you do that in a parallel way with your love life? So no, I'm going to disagree with this quote and say that you need to be proactive and not wait for fate. You got that one right, Rachel. Congratulations. Um, Although there are no right answers, I must say I celebrate you treating the term meet cute with some derision because how trite is that? I think we need to retire that phrase. Moving well, on. Also, Dave, I would yeah. say that you can always rewrite your own meet cute. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> actually have to be the moment you met. I know a lot of people who take creative license with the story of how they met, that they they start they, they tell the truth, but they don't start from the very beginning. They pick it up midway and tell a story about the moment they fell in love. But doesn't have to be the actual face-to-face introduction because in today's world, the meet is now usually a Google search when you type someone's name into Google and stalk them on LinkedIn or something like that. So I just say be creative and write your own meet cute. I like that. Quote number three comes to us from artist and educator Rafael Ortiz, who had the following to say, love is not finding someone to live with. It's finding someone you can't live without. What do you think about that one? Well, I love that one, actually, because finding someone to live with connotes for me a checklist, a checklist of we both like the same outdoor sports or We both have the same ideas of tidiness around the house. To me, someone you can't live without is more emotional. And it's really a gut check that the right person for you is someone that maybe just makes sense, makes you happy on a level that you can't even explain. I've seen so many pairings that on the surface, when they meet people, The other couple might, like you might go out on a a dinner date with another couple and the other couple leaves and in the car on the way home says, would you ever have put those two together? Like they don't seem to make sense at all to the outside world. I wonder what, you know, is their dynamic? So I guess I feel like that is asking the right question, which is, can you live without this person? And that is going to provoke a response from your gut instead of your head. Excellent, excellent answers to all three questions. You have prevailed this process, Rachel, and uh, you've won a box of chocolates and 
a bottle of champagne of your choosing, as long as it's uh, $13 or less. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited and pleased. Thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, it's the least we can do. Back to you, Evan. Rachel, I have to tell you, this was great. What a fun segment with producer Dave. This spot with you, absolute gold as always. You mentioned the Love NBA to start the show. I'm going to mention it again because it's coming up in about four months. The Love NBA, which is taking place in one of producer Dave's favorite spots, La Jolla, California, <laughs> October 3rd to October 5th. Anyone who is interested in becoming a matchmaker can find information on Rachel's website, rachelgreenwald.com. Rachel, it was an absolute pleasure having you back. Oh, thank you so much, Evan. I always love talking to you and I really appreciate your time. Episode 64, what a show. It was absolutely incredible. Rachel Greenwald was brilliant. You should finish listening to this episode and immediately book your flight to La Jolla, California and join Rachel and her incredible Love MBA. You can find out more information on the programs and what this retreat looks like at Rachel's website, rachelgreenwald.com. Producer Dave, Great show. I can't stop buzzing about that guest spot with Rachel Greenwald. She was fantastic. A friend of the program officially now, I would say, and I'd say we'd have to check in with her in the future. Absolutely. And all the listeners can check out the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, including Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs>